it's really not every day that you actually get to interact with a patriarch or a godfather of an industry. But today we have that chance. And even better, you will like and appreciate the fact that not only is today's guest an early retiree, but he's somehow figured out how to actually stay retired and not earn any money or do any work. Or, well, okay, he does do work. But at least he doesn't earn money doing it. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. <laughs> My name is Joshua Sheets, and today is Monday, December 8, 2014. I've got a good one for you today. My guest is a man named Doug Nordman. If you've ever interacted at all in just about any early retirement forum or online discussion about money, I bet you've seen him. He goes by the handle of Nords. Well, if you didn't see Nords, I'm sure you saw one of his Hawaiian shirts. Known for having oh, a pair of jeans, a pair of flip-flops, and a Hawaiian shirt on just about any time you meet him. And I think that's awesome. These are some of the perks that you get when you uh, perks that you get when you are actually a financially independent early retiree. Also, one of the perks that you get when you leave the military and after however many years of of keeping your hair short, your uh, you get to grow it out into, into a uh, very nice ponytail. So my guest today, as I mentioned, is a man named Doug Nordman. Doug is a really awesome guy. He and his wife both retired early, and he has gone on and, well, he and his wife, they live in Hawaii, and the cool thing is is that they've actually stayed retired. They actually don't do anything for money. Although he does blog, uh, he blogs at a website called themilitaryguide.com, the military guide with hyphens in between. Uh, so he blogs there, but he gives away all of the information. Uh, excuse me, all of the revenue from the site goes away to uh, to military charities. He's also written a book for early for retirement to give advice in the military space, and all of that inf- that money, those revenues are given away as well. One of the coolest things about Doug is he's been around in the early retirement space for quite a while. And today, I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's part personal story, personal lessons, but then it's also a good bit about the actual history of the early retirement movement. Enjoy. So, Doug, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I appreciate you being with me today. Thanks, Joshua. It's uh, good to be here. <laughs> so I think of you. <laughs> well, I'm going to have you tell your story uh, uh, here, kind of introduce yourself. But I think of you as one of the the g- patriarchs of the early retirement space. <laughs> and so this I, will I be like, fun. <laughs> I like I like patriarch a lot better than geezer. But yeah, that works. <laughs> so what is your? Uh, so I brought you on today to talk about the history of, uh, of retirement, and you are a, a successful early retiree. To the best of my knowledge, you retired early, and you've been able to stay sort of semi-retired early. So I'd love for you to share your personal story. And then also, primarily what we're going to focus on today is talking about the history of early retirement and its evolution over time. But what's your story as it surrounds money and, and early retirement? Well, I, uh, I joined the Navy right out of high school and started my career in the early 1980s in the uh, submarine force and uh, retired from that after I got my 20 years in uh, 2002. 
and and as I was coming up on retirement in the 90s, I started uh, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with myself after I uh, left the military, and I wasn't really happy with uh, what looked like the uh, options and opportunities. And when my wife and I, uh, or my wife and I were both in the military uh, back in the 80s and 90s, we were both on active duty, and then later on she uh, moved from active duty into the reserves. And so she and I have been a dual-income couple for our working years. Uh, she retired from the reserves in uh, 2008. And as we were saving our money, we were uh, very busy, as you might imagine, in the service. Right. And uh, it was easy to be frugal when you're uh, on sea duty or, or deployed or either just underway all the time, uh, working hard. And so we'd always tried to save at least one income whenever we could. And over the years, we noticed that was compounding very nicely to the point where it was almost like having a, a third income in the house. Right. And uh, as we uh, got through the 80s and into the 90s, uh, it became uh, more easy to calculate how much you'd need for uh, retirement. I, back in the 80s, uh, if you wanted to figure out when you could retire, you had to send away for a notebook or a workbook or maybe you could get a, a, a disc a floppy disk from a, uh, a finance company. Uh -huh. And and most of them would assume that you were going to retire at age 65. If you wanted to retire early than, than 65, you had to figure out what math they were using in their tables and you had to do your own formulas and you had to kind of extrapolate your own stuff. And so that wasn't even a, a, on a radar of most financial companies or most planners or, or even most investors back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And then in the 90s, people started getting a little more flexible. They were starting to see people retire earlier and realize that maybe age 65 is not the traditional retirement date. Um, in, in retrospect, uh, years after it was published, I discovered a book that had been written in 1984 uh, it was written by uh, Paul and Vicki Turhorst. I don't know if anybody uh, knows this one anymore. It's been out of print for years. But it's called uh, Cashing In on the American Dream, How to Retire When You're Age 35. And I remember finding that book when I was uh, 41 years old, and I was thinking, crap, I, I missed the deadline. I was too late. Uh, but he was a uh, an accountant uh, at a consulting firm, and uh, he managed to save enough money to actually retire in 1984. And so that was one of the very first people that I was aware of who early retired. And uh, he and his wife, Vicki, uh, became uh, expatriates. Uh, they became world travelers. And they spent uh, the last uh, 30 years uh, going from one uh, country overseas to another. I mean, it's from South America to Europe to Asia. They've been everywhere. And what really made an impact on me and my wife was in the early 90s with the publication of a book by uh, Joe Dominguez and uh, Vicki Robin called uh, Your Money or Your Life. Have you mm -hmm. you've heard of that one? Yeah. I have. In fact, I've actually read Cashing In on the American Dream years ago. Oh, good. But Your Money or Your Life was one of my favorites from an early age that completely shifted how I <laughs> thought about money. It was, it was still it's on my top 10 recommendations list. Oh, absolutely. And and the movement lives on today. I mean, Vicky's kept the website going for years and does seminars and uh, still uh, talks about it with uh, everybody she can get a hold of. And it made a big difference in 1992. I think that was the one of the first times that anybody had seen a widely publicized way to uh, save your income and get to the point where you had more crossover passive point. income. Mm -hmm. At that crossover point, that, that chart in the book is uh, very important for uh, a lot of people these days. So we use that. And as the 90s went on, we began to realize that we were getting closer and closer to that financial independence. And I'd say by, you know, late 99, uh, early 2000, it looked like uh, we were probably going to make it. You know, we had been saving 50% uh, of our income for uh, 20 years. And if, if the math is done and you look at the safe withdrawal rate and 25 times your annual spending, it looked like we were going to make it. And uh, I retired in uh, summer of 2002. So it's been just over 12 years. 
Uh, we've taken our retirement finances through two recessions, and uh, everything's worked out fine. I mean, the recession itself is not fun, but it's nice to see that your uh, retirement savings will carry you through, that your investments are working out the way they should. Uh-huh. And by now, we're, we're comfortable with volatility, and we understand how things are going to work, and, uh, and we all feel like we know what our spending is going to be. And from here on out, we're just enjoying ourselves. Uh, you, you use the word uh, semi-retired, but uh, it's all for fun now. I, uh, I haven't had a, a W-2 or, or any income for 12 years. Uh, I uh, give away all the uh, income from the book and the blog uh, that I get to uh, military-friendly charities, and that uh, helps uh, people want to contribute more uh, advice and stories for uh, future editions of the book and for other books that I'm going to write someday. It's what I always admired most about uh, Joe Dominguez, it se- author of Your Money or Your Life. It seemed, mm-hmm. if, if everything I've read about him was correct, it seemed that when he retired, he actually retired and didn't go on to try to make a bunch of money telling other people how to get rich and retire. It seemed that he really did walk his walk and, and just simply lived uh, lived on his portfolio and either gave away or he gave away, I think, the income from his book and some of those other things, right? Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. And, and by the time uh, he, uh, he died of cancer in the late 90s, and, and by the time uh, that was uh, occurring, uh, he had still continued to put all of his uh, investments in uh, treasury bonds, and he was living off of treasuries, and uh, inflation uh, was just eating away at him. Uh, by the time he died, he was living in a, a group home, and I think he was managing to live on a very small amount of money, you know, something like eight or $9,000 a year. So he, he stuck with his portfolio uh, through the rest of his life, even though uh, Paul Terhorst, the, uh, the writer of uh, Cashing in an American Dream, he started out all in certificates of deposit, all in CDs in 1984, which you could do with interest rates back in 1984. Mm-hmm. But even Paul, by now, has uh, moved to a, a mix of uh, index funds from the S&P 500. But Joe did not do that, and uh, he never attempted, as near as I can tell, to uh, profit off of uh, your money or your life. I'm, I'm, I'm sure people took care of him. But uh, he didn't attempt to uh, go on a world tour and make himself filthy rich. Was he burned by Wall Street? It just seems so strange that that's always what you have to, whenever I give the book away, and even in the updated version, they mention this, but I always have to say, listen, you can't, you can't necessarily do this on treasuries anymore. Was Not he just anymore. burned by investing, or do you have any idea why he was so committed to that investing course of action? He uh, he made his first uh, million by the time he was uh, 29 years old, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the late 60s. And uh, I think he just felt that uh, he'd seen enough and he wanted to do his own thing. I, I don't know that there was any particular uh, trigger or a trauma or event except the realization, of course, that uh, you know every day that he was uh, working, uh, he was losing that much of his life. And he wanted to save and be able to do his own, uh, his own living. Interesting. So when you were setting out, were, did any of these, and it's been, a, it's been at least a decade since I read Cashing in the American Dream, so I don't remember anything that's in it. I've tried to track <laughs> down for the show, I've tried to track down Paul, Paul. I haven't been able to find him yet. If any listener knows how to get a hold of him, uh, I would love to, uh, I'd love to interview him and some of the other people as well. Uh, but did they talk about actually any metrics? For example, today it's, we commonly talk about 25 times annual income, but did they talk about any metrics or was it more of the idea at that stage? Well, no, for them it was the idea. And, uh, of course, he's uh, an accountant. He was able to take his CPA skills and, and figure out how to project his cash flow and the assets he'd need for that. And uh, what he did was uh, look at his spending that they could achieve overseas in various inexpensive third-world countries and uh, figure that out with the CDs. So when they retired, 100% in CDs, and they knew the income from the CDs was going to pay their costs of living Got overseas. It. Got it. Yeah, going from 17% CD rates for a six-month yeah. CD back in 
I don't know. I remember what year that was to today. <laughs> I would imagine don't, your income plan would collapse if it were still based on CDs. <laughs> don't try this at home, folks. Uh, these are trained professionals, and uh, we didn't know much back then. How old were you and your wife in 2002 when you retired? I, I retired at the age of 41, and uh, she was uh, slightly behind me in age, and our daughter was almost 10 years old. Uh, I don't know if you've raised kids, but uh, at that age, it's what I refer to as the danger zone. So I was glad to be able to spend more time at home with her. Sure. Yeah, I have a, my wife and I have a one-year-old son at the moment, uh, so we're not there yet. <laughs> uh, all i got to say is it gets better. Awesome. <laughs> well, we're, we're enjoying it now, so if it gets better, we're excited about that. Good. How big of a role in your financial planning did the military background make? And I assume you, uh, did, you, you did your 20 years in order to get the, the full payout amount. How big a role was the military pension system in your retirement? It, it started out as uh, as barely covering a portion of the bills. Uh, when you retire from the military, from the U.S. military, you uh, at 20 years get a, a pension that's based on uh, approximately 50 percent of your base pay. And when I say approximately, we use an average of the final three years of the highest pay you've had during that 20 years, and and you get 50 percent of your base pay. Uh, what that works out to in real terms uh, is that you have your regular military paycheck and your housing allowance and your food allowance and maybe some uh, CPAY or some bonus pay for other specialties that you have. And then you go and you retire, your income drops to about one-third of what it was during your working years. Because, again, that pension is based on your base pay and you don't get any uh, extras for any of the allowances you've been earning over the years. Mm-hmm. So most people are are caught unawares, they think, oh, well, I'm making $80,000 a year. When I retire, I'll get a pension of 40000 and life will be good. Well, not so fast. Uh, if your income is $80,000 when you're on active duty, all of your income, uh, your allowances that are not taxed, as well as your taxable income, when you retire, you'll be uh, looking at a pension more of around $23,000, uh, because of that issue with base pay. And and back then, we uh, had retired with a mortgage uh, on our home, and uh, we had expected that we would be able to fit that into our finances. What we anticipated was that I'd uh, use the military pension to buy the groceries and pay the mortgage, and uh, the rest of it we'd uh, handle from our investments. You know, the 4% safe withdrawal rate, we had enough investments to, to make that work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, an ante- I did not anticipate this at all, but then uh, interest rates started dropping in 2000s after the uh, recession, mm-hmm. and we started refinancing. And so, uh, over the years, the uh, military pension rises with a, a cost of living adjustment, just like Social Security. It's the same uh, COLA. Over the years, uh, 12 years of uh, military retirement, my pension has risen by 27%. But more importantly, we've refinanced this property enough that our mortgage payment has dropped by 40%. And so today, uh, my, my pension, $42,000 a year, covers almost all of our spending. Uh, we've, we could live on that 42000 a year if we cut back and had to do that with the non-discretionary expenses. But of course, you know, we spend a little more money for entertainment and travel. Sure, sure. Uh, but it's been very reassuring to know that the military pension and the inflation adjustment have uh, covered us over the years and taken care of us. One other one other big advantage for the military retiree is uh, cheap health care. I don't know if you uh, track the numbers, but uh, military retirees uh, can get uh, health insurance through TRICARE. Uh, the the uh, full coverage program, TRICARE Prime, has a monthly premium of about $55 tops. It rises a little bit every year with inflation, but again, uh, it's one of the cheapest uh, health programs around, and it's uh, enabled us to retire as well. If you looked at other insurance policies that you could get through the uh, healthcare exchanges, through the ACA, you know, costs 
what, eight, ten times more than that for people even without pre-existing conditions. So those, those two factors, cheap health care and the uh, cost of living adjustment on the military pension have been a big factor. Yeah, I, I, I briefly, I've never actually worked with anybody who was on TRICARE. I briefly studied it um, in a textbook because for mm. one of my registered health underwriter classes, we had to do a bunch of stuff on TRICARE. It always struck me as something that I wanted to research more. Do you, in order to be eligible for TRICARE, do you need to do, what are the benefits, in order to be eligible for TRICARE after termination of service, what, uh, what are the requirements for that? Do you know? You uh, get TRICARE Prime or TRICARE Standard when you retire from active duty. Okay. Uh, when you retire from the, the reserves, and, and, and the reserves are a little different from active duty, uh, the reserves and National Guard, you retire and you're awaiting your pension to start at age 60. Uh, when you retire from the reserves of the Guard, you can also get a form of, of TRICARE insurance. It's called TRICARE Retired Reserve. Uh, that is not subsidized by the federal government, so you end up paying a fairly high premium. It might be as much as uh, 600 or $900 a month, depending on uh, individuals or families. And, but that is a, a good uh, insurance program to have to bridge the time from when you stop drilling with the Reserves or National Guard until you start your pension at age 60. Right. Uh, everything else requires you to uh, be on active duty or, or be in drilling status with the Reserve or National Guard. All the other TRICARE pro- programs assume that you're uh, in uniform. When you uh, get to Medicare age, you might have heard of TRICARE for Life, which is uh, supplemental Medicare insurance, and that pays uh, second payer to Medicare for military retirees that are uh, age 65 or over, you know, as soon as you start Medicare. How big of a difference does um, military or, or can, because I know you, now you write ex- specifically towards the military audience. Mm-hmm. Yep. How big of a difference do the other ancillary benefits in addition to salary and in addition to health care expenses? So, for example, um, housing uh, provided other, you know, I don't I don't I'm not fully my dad was in the was in the Navy and the subs, but I, I've never been in. But but I know that a lot of other stuff is is uh, covered. How big of a difference does that make from the perspective of an early of an early retirement? Uh, 20, 25 years ago, it used to make a substantial difference. Uh, big box stores have uh, cut that down quite a bit these days. Uh, for example, you used to uh, try to retire near a military base so that you had access to a commissary for food and uh, used to try to go on a base to buy cheap gasoline or uh, to be able to use the exchange. Uh, Costco, Walmart, uh, Sam's Club, all of those big box stores have uh, followed up on that model. And today the prices are pretty close. Uh, you generally know what's cheaper at Costco and you know what's more expensive at uh, Walmart and you know where to buy gas on base at a good price. So I would, I would say that the, the base access has, uh, is not as significant as the, uh, the COLA and, uh, and the healthcare. Um, some people, though, you, you take great comfort in being able to go on the base where you know the culture and you know the places that uh, have familiar to you. And you can uh, go uh, work on your car at the uh, auto hobby shop. You know, you can go pull your car in and rent a lift for, you know, the ridiculous sum of like 5 or $10 an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can go join the, uh, the gym and uh, have a workout program there or a runner's club. And again, it's a very nominal fee for retirees. So that, that people enjoy doing that. But we're, we're much less tied to military bases in retirement than we used to be 25 or 30 years ago. Do you think that, and I'm going to read a paragraph here, but the question is, mm-hmm. do you think that uh, early, uh, to, uh, that the military is, a, is an important, joining the military would be, should that be a primary strategy for someone who's primarily interested in saying, how can I, how quickly can I, uh, uh, how quickly can I uh, 
you know, can I retire? And before you answer that, I want to read a, a paragraph as an introduction here. Uh-huh. This is from a Yahoo Finance article, which you are very familiar with, both this article and the follow-up. But the paragraph here... I see and, this one coming. <laughs> this paragraph here is about a young man uh, named Ivan, last name is Anton Ivanov, who the story was that at 27 years old, he had become a millionaire. And one of the primary ways that he did this was by joining the, the military, which allowed him to save 60% of his income. And this paragraph in the story here says, fortunately, military life was the perfect environment for a single person looking to save. The, the bulk of his fixed expenses, housing, food, transportation, insurance, were covered. He set up automatic transfers for his savings and investment accounts and followed a strict schedule. First, he maxed out his annual Roth IRA contribution. Then he contributed the maximum to his annual thrift savings plan, the federal employee version of the 401k. Then he split the remaining balance between his brokerage account and the savings funds he keeps for future real estate investments. While he studied, he earned extra cash through one-off web design and programming gigs he got through freelance job sites like elance.com and odesk.com. He estimates these side jobs added another fifteen dollars to $20,000 to his annual income. So if that paragraph were true, then this sounds like basically the ultimate um, retirement plan. Join the military. All of your expenses are covered. Save 50% of your income. Use all your extra time to earn extra money and invest it wisely. Comment away. <laughs> it, it actually works. It, uh, it's, the, it's the real proof, the real system. Uh, and it's a shame that he uh, went and lied about uh, his actual uh, source of his, of his assets uh, and destroyed his credibility. Uh, I take that very personally because he's a military veteran. He should know better than to, mm-hmm. to lie like that. But uh, the reality is that all those methods he describes uh, work just fine in the military. I'd, I'd even go a step further and say that in the military, uh, when you're in uniform, you are extremely familiar with deprivation. You, uh, you're used to living outdoors for weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. You're uh, used to living in a very small space with a very small bed and very limited storage. Uh, you're used to working long hours and uh, strange hours. Uh, you're used to uh, only being fed uh, once or twice a day if you're out in the field. There's a whole bunch of different things in the military that we put up with that that even even convicts in the federal prison system have lawyers who have given them uh, more privileges and more rights than some people in the military. <laughs> and and yet and yet it works. And by that by that line between frugality and deprivation, uh, you can easily save forty to fifty percent of your pay while you're in active duty. Even if you're single, uh, even if you're married, uh, either way, you can still try to save forty to fifty percent of your money while you're in uniform. And the the way that he lays out the savings program is exactly where you're supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. Max out your Roth IRA, max out your thrift savings plan, put the additional money in taxable accounts, and uh, plan for your transition. It it works. The math is there and the uh, money from the military is there. Admittedly, when you join the Navy or the, any of the services at the age of 17 or 18 years old, you're going to have a very small paycheck and you might be challenged even at maxing out the contribution to your Roth IRA. But the longer you stay in the military, the more your pay rises, the more you get promoted and the easier it is to max out your Roth IRA, your spouse's Roth IRA, your thrift savings plan, and that accelerates and compounds. So every, everything he said, it works. It's just a shame that he had to lie about his uh, assets. Yeah, and the backstory on this is as we record this uh, on November 25th, a couple days ago it came out. Originally the story was published that I just referenced. But then some days later it came out that the, the man had evidently lied about the entire thing. And the bulk of his million-dollar net worth, I guess he actually was a millionaire, but the bulk of that million-dollar net worth was accumulated through uh, was accumulated through. Uh, his uh, 
parent, like an inheritance that he had received of some kind. And that was the primary source of wealth. And so the problem was that it may have violated the actual facts, and that is, you know, a legitimate issue, violated the actual facts, but that doesn't take it away as a useful example. Exactly. Uh, and again, he destroyed his credibility there, but the uh, math still works. And uh, I'd encourage all uh, service members today to keep maxing out their contributions to their to their IRAs, to their uh, thrift savings plan, and save as much as you can for as long as you can. And the reason is because in the military, you're extremely experienced with being frugal, and you know when you've gone too far because you've experienced deprivation too. How much does at 18 years old someone joining up 18 no, no just a rank and file? Uh, person how much does an 18 year old recruit make would you guess it's it, it's pretty pitiful it's about uh, 17 eighteen thousand dollars a year uh, in uh, paycheck but again uh, housing is subsidized or free uh, food is uh, subsidized or free as well it, it depends on where you're stationed and whether you're married or not and uh, the total compensation package when you just join the military is probably about uh, 30 to thirty five thousand dollars a year Again, that's highly dependent on what part of the country you're living in and whether you're stationed overseas because the, uh, the living allowances that you get for food and housing will vary with the location you're stationed in. Uh, and I would add to that that after you've been in the military for a couple of years, you're probably getting at least one promotion. If you uh, sign on for a very technical field or if you sign on for a little longer commitment like six or eight years, then you get a couple more promotions. So that starting salary is like going into a McDonald's and working a minimum wage job. However, uh, if you were uh, doing the equivalent uh, of working at McDonald's, uh, then by the way the military works it, within six years you'd be running that McDonald's. And, right. and that's what happens in the military is that you, uh, you know, with a six or eight year enlistment, you'll be at least up the ranks to E5 or E6 and you'll be uh, looking at uh, annual compensation of, again, this depends on skills and where you're stationed, of between fifty dollars and $75,000 a year. I have a friend who owns a bunch of McDonald's, and if you apply yourself in six years, you can be running any McDonald's in the world. <laughs> it, it's not. It's right. It's not about the the skills. It's just about the work and uh, the persistence. Uh, you know, I don't know if your father was a nuclear trained submariner or not. He but, was on the uh, last of the diesel boats. Oh, okay, uh, diesel boats forever guy. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the nuclear train officers uh, today in the submarine force uh, are able to, at their sixth or seventh year of service, uh, make over $100,000 a year on a bonus contract. It's as high as $130,000 a year total package just for all the nuclear training and for uh, being willing to stick around past that uh, initial obligation for a few more years. Right. Yeah, interesting story. I'll make it very brief, but Admiral Rickover actually he rejected my dad and <laughs> when he applied to the when he applied to the program cuz his grades weren't good enough and he was you know, he was very hard working but as he was he was working full time and going to school full time and he'd gotten his engineering degree and uh he was rejected. So he stayed on the diesel subs, but looking back on it later, he was on the last of the diesel subs, it was the one they sold it to, uh, they just, it's, it's parked in Arkansas, Razorback, I think is what. Oh, okay. Yeah. So of course it's Razorback. That, <laughs> that was the boat that he was on. And he, but he looks back on it, he says one of the greatest blessings that he ever had was that he didn't wind up in the nuclear program. Uh, just because of the, at that time, the lifestyle, uh, I mean, it was so difficult as it was to be on the diesel boats and out on six month cruises and just the, the sheer difference of intensity that it would have required from the nuclear program program uh he was glad later with hindsight that he that he was uh that passed over for that i i uh 
got a chance to uh, speak with the Admiral myself three days before he retired, and uh, he was a little grumpy about it, but uh, that's how I got in the program. <laughs> After he had, what, he, had, he, was the, he was the one who completely changed the rules for how many years, right? To keep, exactly. <laughs> so that he could keep running the Navy long past anyone was supposed to be around. <laughs> well, they actually passed some new laws. Congress uh, passed new laws after he'd retired because by that point he'd outlived all his supporters in Congress. But uh, uh, it, it did uh, make us uh, very intense and focused over the years. And, you know, in the last 12 years, I spent a lot of time trying to uh, slow down and uh, not be so intense and focused about certain things just because of my uh, submarine nuclear training background. I believe it. So let's continue on the early retirement theme. So yeah. your early influences were Paul, Tur- Paul Turhorse's book, Cashing mm-hmm. in the American Dream, and then um, and then uh, the your money or your life. But you've watched right. this develop. So today, I've, I've come in on the tail end of this stuff, you know, basically now where it's this massive, I think it's a massive movement all across the world. What were some of the other developments, and especially how did the online community develop? Uh, I, I was I was dialing into uh, bulletin board systems with a, a modem back in the late 90s, and uh, uh, back then, uh, one of the more popular places to have an internet discussion was uh, The Motley Fool. This was back when The Motley Fool was uh, a brand new startup and very popular among people because all their forums were free. Uh, and they had a very robust uh, retire early homepage there that had a lot of people posting on it, a lot of discussions back and forth. Uh, and then the uh, the Motley Fool tried to charge a monthly fee, and it was some ridiculous sum like five dollars a month to be a member of the Motley Fool forums, and that led to a, a mass exodus. <laughs> that business plan did not work out well for the fools, but uh, the, uh, the the residents there on the retire early page uh, left and went to a, a new forum that was started by a guy who's still in the business today. Uh, he started his forum in 1996. It's the retire early homepage. His name is John Greeny. Uh, he retired from the oil and gas industry in the Houston area back in the in the late 90s. Uh, and even today, I mean, it's been uh, 18 years. Uh, he still posts to his forum, I'd say, four or five times a year. Wow. Uh, when, uh, they, they all moved over there, and they started uh, doing the same research and discussion that they'd been doing on The Motley Fool. And then uh, another uh, forum got started in 2002, and this is one that I've been associated with for over 12 years now. And it's called the uh, earlyretirement.org uh, website, uh, early-retirement.org. Uh, that got started in 2002 by a, a web designer, uh, a guy who uh, had retired from an IT job. And uh, <laughs> he said that uh, when uh, he was working in the late 90s, uh, that one of his uh, office mates had a retirement ceremony, and they made a big joke out of putting all kinds of retirement stuff on the door to his office. And one of them was a printout from that uh, John Greeny Retire Early homepage that had all the information about early retirement. And that was the first time that uh, this guy at earlyretirement.org had thought about early retirement. And what he managed to do uh, was not only to retire early, but he and his spouse bought a a small boat, a trawler, a 36-foot trawler. And they actually uh, spent their time cruising up and down on the uh, intracoastal waterway. Uh-huh. And and he was running the uh, forum uh, from his cell phones in the afternoons after they would tie up somewhere. He'd get online with his cell phone at some pitiful data rate uh-huh. and uh, and manage the forum. And that went on from uh, 2002 to about uh, 2005, and the forum kept growing the whole time as more of us got in there and got interested in uh, figuring out the math and the lifestyle behind early retirement. That was uh, Dory 36. He uh, he named his uh, online presence for the uh, the boat he was on a 36 foot trawler. Mm-hmm. 
And so uh, I, I had lurked on that forum uh, when I retired in 2002, and about 2004, I started asking questions uh, about uh, the lifestyle and the finances. And I'd been, of course, early retired for 18 months by then, but uh, I was just checking in with the experts here to make sure I didn't miss something. I wanted to make sure I understood all the factors and had accounted for them all. And I, I wanted to know if the if the I wouldn't call it a failure rate, I'd call it a a, a recidivism rate uh, was was higher than uh, than 50 percent. I wanted to know if people were just sitting around for a couple of years and then going back to work. Right. And I, I was told, oh, no, no, you know, if you're if you're having fun and you're early retired and you're enjoying life, it's probably going to continue like that for the rest of your life. So that was very reassuring, and I, I hung around on that board. I've been uh, posting there since uh, early 2004, uh, over over 10 years, almost 11 years now. Wow. There have been a, a few other sites over the years. Uh, one uh, other site that started up in 2004 was uh, started by a, uh, a retired uh, radiologist, uh, and his poster name is Radder, R-A-D-D-R, Radiation Doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did a lot of math and number crunching back then, and he figured out a lot of the math behind the four uh, percent safe withdrawal rate he uh, looked at long-term retirements you know you know the original four percent safe withdrawal rate was uh, for a 30-year survival on a portfolio mm-hmm. and he did research some of the first research I'd seen to extend that out to 50 years uh, and of course he came up with a slightly smaller number but it was encouraging to see that it could work uh, his board is uh, also you know still in, still in the uh, Active these years, after all these years, uh, he did a lot of the website research and then left that as a as a web page and then went on and started to form. Uh, I'd say the next big uh, initiative was uh, Morningstar. You know, uh, the Motley Fool was one of the first places to have a, a robust uh, bunch of forums about investing in retirement. But uh, Morningstar also had a, a bunch of forums of their own. And uh, there was a uh, an incident, uh, I'd say around 2006, 2007, I'm not exactly sure when, uh, a lot of the uh, boards were not very well moderated by Morningstar, and one of the forums that they had there was the uh, Vanguard Diehards, and they had a, a nor- notorious troll on there, and that troll uh, just uh, completely ruined the environment for everybody, and uh, it actually inspired a number of the Vanguard Diehards to break off and start up their own forum, and that huh. became Bogleheads. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that was the start of Bogleheads, was the problems that Morningstar had uh, uh, taking care of uh, moderating their own forum. But I think it's been one of the greatest things to happen for early retirement. The uh, Bogleheads have done a lot of work to uh, make sure everybody understands not just early retirement, but investing in, in conventional retirement, whatever retirement you want. And and one of their biggest contributions has been their wiki. They've uh, put together a very robust archive of uh, information articles on retirement, investing, and lifestyle. And we've uh, contributed to a substantial archive over there for the military as well as for other types of occupations and other people that are interested in either a traditional career and retiring in their 60s or early retirement. Or maybe they're just interested in working for the rest of their lives or living overseas, however they want to do it. Let me ask you a question and interrupt your time flow here with yeah. a question about forums because I personally have really enjoyed a lot of forums and have learned from them. I've recommended to many people, um, including clients, that the best place to go is to find a good forum and ask people. But I have I have two concerns about that. Mm-hmm. And the first one is a small concern that usually forums are organized around one specific theme, so you got to find the right forum. For example, if you are in the Bogleheads forum, you're going to get you're going to get 
acolytes of John Bogle, and which is <laughs> nothing wrong with that, but there are other points of view, and that would be different than I've never been in the forum, but I'm sure there's a Berkshire Hathaway, uh, you know, stock owners forum somewhere. I've, I've never been there, but I'm sure it exists. So that would be a different perspective. Uh, but the big, my bigger concern is how to figure out who knows what they're talking about in the forums, <laughs> because I've 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 privately connected in a few, I've privately contributed and anonymously contributed in a few forums, which I think is one of the big major values. But there are a few forums where I've publicized who I am. Probably the one I've participated in the most is the Money Mustache Forum, which is right. a great forum. But sometimes I go in there and I see somebody giving bad advice. Like the other day, I posted on a on a I posted somebody at a question on life insurance, and I only had time. But I said, let me give it. Like it, you know, the question was, I'm 23 years old, and I gate went in and I said, they said, what kind of life insurance should I buy? And they were making a consideration, and it's a topic I'm very I know my stuff in, and uh-huh. they were trying to, to to figure out the difference between the AICPA offerings versus others. And all I simply said was I said, don't buy level term life insurance, buy annual renewable term life insurance at your age. And that's a very unusual, but very, very strong. And I, I feel very strongly about that perspective. But I'm very qualified to go in and defend that, but I don't have the. I'm not willing to dedicate the time to going into the forum and saying, you know, he, here's why you need to listen to me. But mm-hmm. and I don't want to go in and get in an argument with people. But the problem is, is that sure. many people are very well intentioned, but they might not have necessarily the level of technical background to understand what they're doing. How do you figure out who's blowing smoke and who's who knows what they're talking about in a forum? You have to do your own due diligence, and so somebody will come across in a forum, they may be very articulate, very reasonable, their name may be Anton Ivanov, and you have to figure out if what they're saying is is not only making sense for your particular situation, but whether you can find that information and confirm it uh, at other websites. I, I try every time I talk about military benefits or pay or military retirement. I try to back it up with the uh, source from either a study or from the instruction on the Department of Defense website or some other credible source. And it's that way when you're talking about early retirement or investing, you'll go to a study somebody has done somewhere. Maybe it's something as simple as a Vanguard uh, marketing sheet, right. but it might be something uh, more thoroughly researched, like the work that Wade Fow is doing on the safe withdrawal rate. Or uh, some old stuff like the original uh, Bengen thought about the uh, safe max withdrawal rate, or even mm-hmm. the Trinity study. So you have to you have to read, you have to get familiar. I I would not blindly go into an internet forum and say, oh hey great, this anonymous guy on the internet says I have enough assets to retire. Good, I'm done. Right. Instead, you've got to go sit down and do your reading and do your math and figure out from a retirement calculator or from whatever books or whatever other authoritative websites you personally trust whether you want to do this. And and it's not just, is the math there? Can I do this because the math works? Can I do this because a research study and a computer simulation say this works? You You also have to have a personal level of comfort that might actually be a bigger challenge than saving enough assets. And that, that personal level of comfort can take a while to develop. You you may figure out that you have more than enough money to last the rest of your life, but you still have to figure out how you're going to live your life and what you're going to do with your time. And and, and the joke on most of the early retirement forums is, is, what are you going to do all day? And there are other books and other websites to go to for that to help you figure out what your interests are and how you're going to occupy your time. And I, I think that being responsible for your own entertainment uh, is a big challenge for some people, especially if they identify closely with their job. Uh, that can uh, hold up the transition and make it even worse if they're uh, if they're actually laid off or, or fired. 
So uh, there's a big emotional component to retiring early that is very reassuring to get from uh, posting on internet forums and reading what other people have to say about early retirement. But again, you got to do your own due diligence, got to read, got to uh, figure out if this is really going to work for your personal situation. Yeah, I don't have many concerns about the personal finance issues or even like saving money issues. Those things are fairly simple. What I have concerns about are when people get into specific discussions on specific products. Um, for example, there's a massive difference between one insurance product from one company versus another or versus oh, yeah. from one annuity product to another annuity product. And people often throw – I. I observe many contributors throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, oh, no, you can't, no, don't ever buy annuities, forgetting the fact that Doug Nordman is living on one annuity right now and two <laughs> called the military pension system and will have another one called the social security system. Yep. <laughs> Doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with an annuity. It just means you got to get a good one and it's got to fit. And then the other thing is when people often get into legal um legal advice surrounding trust, estate planning, tax planning. And oh, yeah. I did. I used to think that the advice was good, and then I learned, and I, I, as I've grown, then I've learned. The problem is I just don't have time. Like, I don't have time to contribute. So I, I love forums. I think they're awesome. And I always just worry, though. <laughs> I hope people are backing it up with their own due diligence. Uh, great place to gather ideas and to gain from stuff. I've learned so much stuff in forums that I couldn't, I can never find in a textbook, but got to back it up with some research. Oh, and you've got to learn the vocabulary so that when you do go talk to a financial professional, you know what questions you should ask and you are listening for the keywords and the, the caveats and the, and other tricky phrases that might make you get the wrong impression. Right. So, yeah. And I always love, I always love people say, hey, I'm going to go talk to a financial advisor. Um, what options do you have? Because, man, it's the greatest thing in the world when a client comes in. You know, I come from the background of a financial advisor. It's so mm -hmm. wonderful to work with a client who knows their stuff, knows the questions they should be asking, and allows you to spend your time showing off your skill <laughs> instead of, and your knowledge, answering something that's better than, you know, how do I save money? <laughs> well, the other, the other thing is you can educate yourself for free on an internet forum and then go into that financial advisor's office right. and uh, start a project that may only take a, now may only take an hour to explain to you instead of five hours to educate and then explain to you. So uh, it saves quite a bit of money just to educating yourself. I, I tell people that that financial advisors have to know a little bit about everything. They've got to be, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep on every topic of finances. But right. a person that is saving for their own early retirement, they they only have to be an expert on their finances. They right. they can be an inch wide and a mile deep on their own financial situation, and that's all they need to talk about with a financial advisor is to know what they need to understand for their personal situation. They can get a lot of that from an internet forum and then confirm it with a professional if they're not certain that's what they want to do. Right. And they can they can gather some good data as far as points of concern, and that's uh, you know here's what I should be watching out for, and then someone like me can say, well, have you considered this, 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 and kind oh, yeah. of work work those things together. And the key is you can uh, the financial advisor can know your actual details, and that's the yeah. difference that I've observed. At this point, when someone says this is what you should do without knowing details, I'm done. You know, <laughs> it's bad. That's bad advice. 
Well, the more you lurk, uh, the more you post on internet forums, the more you hang around the advice that people are given, the quicker you'll be able to see who's uh, just using absolutes and negatives all the time, and they only see things in black and white instead of the shades of gray. Uh, others who are uh, stuck on one particular topic and, and never figure out how to take a more nuanced view of things. It, it takes a while to see that when you're on an internet forum, but that's why I like sticking with one for a while to understand the personalities and the backgrounds of the people who post there. Uh, until we... Uh, until we all start posting our uh, tax returns and our uh, salary structure <laughs> and our and our paychecks on the internet forums, we're all going to try to keep those details private. Right. And so you have to figure out what's right for your own situation. Right. So okay. So the Bogaheads grew, and then early retirement, uh, early hyphen retirement dot org grew. Uh, right. were, were there more developments after that 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 well, have made it, a big difference? It, we uh, we started crowdsourcing uh, on earlyretirement.org forum. Uh, one of the posters uh, was a, uh, a entrepreneur and a, a guy in a tech business in the 90s, and he had just uh, retired early. And his idea was that he was not going to completely retire cold turkey and never work again. He wanted to uh, retire and do a little of this, a little of that, maybe some consulting, maybe some part-time work. He really didn't want to know, didn't know what he wanted to do with the rest of his life, but he expected to uh, live a life where he did some work all the time as long as he was capable of it. And uh, his name is Bob Clyatt. <clears throat> and Bob went on to write uh, a crowdsourced book from the Early Retirement Forum called Work Less, Live More. And that came out in 2005. And, and Bob's uh, uh, pick on uh, that book was one that he had a lot of personal stories in there from the posters on the Early Retirement website. And he also had a lot of advice from us, uh, enough advice to the point where he went out and he paid a, uh, a programming firm to uh, simulate uh, a different type of withdrawal system that no one had looked at until now. And Bob was one of the first guys to develop a, a variable retirement strategy, uh, excuse me, a variable withdrawal strategy in retirement. And what that meant was that you could retire and start taking money out of your portfolio at what you think was the safe withdrawal rate of 4%. But then if a big recession hit, you could cut your spending back a little bit and not have to cut it back too severely. And Bob was able to actually hire a computer firm that could do the programming and do the analysis and show that in retirement, a, a variable withdrawal system would allow your portfolio to survive longer. And nobody had ever been able to figure this out before because it's just too complicated. The original research on retiring assumed that you spent the same amount every year adjusted for inflation because that was the most the computer programming could handle back then. So Bob's contribution was uh, nice to see a variable system, which is the way that I spend in retirement. No matter uh, how logical or how experienced you are, when the market's up, you're going to probably spend a little more money. And when the market's down and everybody's jumping out of second-story windows, uh, you're probably going to spend a little less money in a recession. Uh, Bob also used that crowdsource model to uh, get a lot of content for the book, and that really helped him write it, was being able to uh, have people email him stuff, and he would try out the snippets of chapters on us, and he would ask us questions about the text or the conclusion of the book. The publisher had a hard time with uh, understanding the concept of early retirement, so he was able to show that there was a big forum where this was discussed all the time and explain to the publisher what was going on, and uh, they bought into it. When when I saw Bob do that, I thought, geez, you know, the military service members that retire, they've already got a pension adjusted for inflation. They've already got cheap health care. There should be more military retirees. Where where are all the military retirees who are going to do work less, live more? And that's how my book got started. We crowdsourced on the same model that Bob Clyatt used. Uh, we uh, 
got a bunch of advice and stories from service members and their families and veterans and military retirees. And uh, I would write a chapter and farm it out to uh, 20 or 30 people and take their feedback and uh, keep working it. And I took it very slow and took it very leisurely. But uh, over the next uh, six years, we uh, wrote a book and uh, published that as the Military Guide to Financial Independence and Retirement. Now, Bob has gone on in his, uh, he calls it semi-retirement, to uh, become a sculptor. Huh. And, oh, he is an incredibly talented sculptor. He, uh, he was one of those guys who always enjoyed high school art classes, but when it was time to go to college, his father suggested he should study business and get a real job <laughs> instead of being an artist. And so Bob avenged himself by uh, uh, retiring early and going back and starting his art. Uh, but he has uh, done amazing work. He lives in, uh, uh, on a suburb in Long Island uh, near New York City. And he has a lot of art galleries around there that he exhibits in. And it's uh, his last name is spelled C-L-Y-A-T-T, Clyatt, Bob Clyatt. And look him up in the internet for Bob Clyatt sculptures. And he uh, does wonderful work with uh, figures of people's bodies and people's heads and abstract uh, a, a takeoff on a sculptor of a, a person or somebody out there doing something like uh, leaping or dancing. And he's figured out how to do uh, amazing structural things with sculpture. I had no idea when, when I sat down to watch him do a video of how to make a head out of clay. I had no idea there was so much engineering in it. And Bob, wow. is, oh, he has done a lot of work on it. He's actually traveled to uh, foundries in the People's Republic of China to uh, uh, build sculptures of his art uh, three or four foot high. Uh, a head that big cannot be built out of just clay. It has to have a bunch of infrastructure inside it. And then he's figured out how to do the metallurgy behind casting it. So he, he's just done tremendous things in retirement with art. And he's living his dream. He's having a wonderful life. And, you know, his, his spouse keeps having to bring dinner out to the art studio late at night after he's waiting for something to cool or he's experimenting with some new technique. He, is, he has really figured out what he's going to do all day. And uh, I, I feel the same way after I got the book written and published uh, that I had never had a, a day when I uh, felt bored or where I felt unfulfilled or had trouble figuring out what I was going to do with myself. And uh, Bob and I just, we immediately connected on that basis. And we've been good friends for the last mm, almost 10 years now. This to me is one of the things I love about early retirement is just not viewing it as a goal, but viewing it as a milestone that, that I a, think of. It's because, a journey. Right. Because, I, I mean, my observation, maybe you know somebody. I've had, I've had people ask, and you bring someone on who doesn't, doesn't work, and I'm like, well, the people who actually have the money to retire, they don't quit working. Now, they may quit working for pay. It sounds like you've done that. Have you done that fully? Are you doing anything that earns you money? Uh, no, I, uh, right. all the uh, income from the book and uh, and the blog income uh, goes to military friendly charities, and, right. and and there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is uh, what we're going to now start calling the Ivanov reason, where you want to be completely transparent about your income and your assets. But the other reason is that it encouraged people to contribute their advice and their stories. I said, hey, if you help me write the book, uh, then when we start giving the royalties to charities, you get a vote on which military charity gets uh, the royalty money. And it really encouraged people to volunteer that I think otherwise would not have been interested. That is so cool. I love I love the crowdsourcing of books and ideas. That's that's what a, what a there, cool world we live in. <laughs> well, you know, you know that you can go out there and write an ebook, and you can uh, freelance uh, an 
editor, you can freelance a cover designer, you can freelance a copy editor, whatever you need. And you can also crowdsource that. If you've got enough people who are happy to help, there are a lot of people out there that are, you know, retired artists, retired editors, retired copywriters, retired authors. And uh, if they want to help you with your project, they'll uh, contribute the labor. It's inspiring to them and it's, it's fun. I also wanted to touch on, you talked about the variable withdrawal strategy. This is one of the things I love about the early retirement community is in general, the challenge that there, there's often a very different language that's spoken between mainstream financial advisors and the early retirement community. And what I think people often forget, at least in my observation, is that the mainstream financial advisor's job, it's its so rare to find someone who's saving 10% of their income that you're almost <laughs> excited when someone's saving 10%. Now, you run across somebody who's <laughs> saving 20% or 30% or 50%. This is, this is <laughs> I mean, it doesn't happen. Happen in the financial advisor's job. So you can forgive us if we're a little bit surprised when someone says, I'm saving you know, 70% of my income. <laughs> what do you think about my financial plan? This is not something that we see every day. And, and not only that, but you realize they're probably going to retire earlier than you are. Right, right. Yeah. And just because <laughs> someone's a financial planner does not mean they're good with money. I know a lot of it's it sounds horrible, but it's the truth that I know a lot of financial planners that are that are that are right next to that are close to broke. And people often forget that I think I, when I use the term financial planning, that's application of skill it is an application of financial knowledge and skill to a specific problem. It doesn't mean that somebody has the same lifestyle goals as, as their client may have. Um, this, this really bothers a lot of people and right or wrong, you know, I, I think you gotta, if it bothers you, find a different advisor who does have that. But you know, this business is, is very much a, a business like, like many other things. But the point is that it's it, it when you give me the opportunity of having a variable variable withdrawal strategy with a retiree client where they're willing to adjust their income significantly based upon market performance even though maybe i can des- I, even though i certainly can design a plan that doesn't take it into account that margin of safety is an amazing thing and it it, it just makes the, the it it brings such a buffer to the decision that it relieves the stress on me as a planner that's very abnormal cuz most of the time the, the clients that a planner may be working with, they're coming to the age of 65 and they've barely got it. And they're not willing to change their income and they're not willing to change their lifestyle one bit because after all, they've worked towards this retirement plan and everything is based upon spending a higher level of income in retirement. It's a very tough yeah. financial planning nut to crack. And That's so right. just the ability to learn to be flexible with expenses and live a great lifestyle on varying expenses from year to year, <laughs> your planner will love you if you give that scenario to them. I, I don't think people anticipate that actually is going to happen. They uh, they see that they want to live the same lifestyle in retirement that they had before retirement, only they just don't want to have to go to work. And they don't appreciate that uh, there will probably be a big spike in uh, spending during that first five years of retirement, just as you all run around and enjoy life and uh, travel and fulfill all the things you swore you were going to do as soon as you could get out of the office. But over the 30 or 40 years of a, of a retirement, it turns out that by the time people are in their 70s or 80s that they've done most of the things they really wanted to do. Most of the expensive experiences have been experienced and most of the expensive objects have been purchased and used. And uh, people start to focus on the things that are very important in their lives and they don't necessarily cost much money. And it's there have been surveys and urban studies, uh, but it's mostly anecdotal data that says as you get older, you tend to spend less money. 
And so that's a variable retirement withdrawal system right there. And nobody has really tried to figure out how to quantify that. And uh, Bob, you know, with his, his system was one of the first to figure out how you can cut back just a little bit during a recession without having to take a huge whack at your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I, I like the approach of uh, having some annuitized income that covers your bare bones of your spending. You know, if you have to pay all your non-discretionary expenses, do you have enough annuitized income to cover that during a big bear market? And if you can handle that, then you can handle all the rest of the surprises that come up in your life. You can even go out there and spend the money on a fantasy vacation one year and then cut back another year and make up for it. So that, that is very human. It's uh, the way we all like to spend our money and, and measure chunks to cover certain activities or certain events. And we don't want to have to be a, a regular rigid computer program. So if the financial advisor can come up with a couple of rules, you know, like Bob Clyde's system or some other types of variable withdrawal systems I've seen over the years, all you got to do is whip out the rule book and see what you can do and figure out how to live within that. It's a, it's a wonderful way to give yourself the confidence to retire before the traditional age and not to have to worry about money when you are retired. Yeah, the, the safe floor, the, the, the oh, floor yeah. of income is what we call that approach. That's the one I've always found to be the most intuitive for people. It really oh, yeah. helps people make sense. I don't remember. I, I just I went and looked up Clyde's book, and I realized I've read it because I recognize the cover, oh. but I don't remember his system. What was his system that he laid out in there? Well, it, it's frequently confused with the Trinity study of the 4% safe withdrawal rate. And I'll let me briefly mention the Trinity studies system is that you take your 4% when you retire and then every year you raise that by inflation. So the Trinity system, you start at a 4% withdrawal rate and every year you boost it by the inflation rate. Bob has a different version of that. Uh, Bob starts at 4% every year. Every year that you're retired, at the beginning of the year, you withdraw 4% of your portfolio. You don't even think about inflation. If the stock market was up the last year and your portfolio is up, you start in January, you withdraw 4% of that portfolio, and and that's the money you're going to live on that year. If the stock market's up, that's fine. You're not going to have much of a problem with that. Uh, When the stock market is down, though, Bob gives you a a variable system to soften the blow. If the uh, stock market uh, loses 20%, uh, the the nightmare scenario is that the following year, you would have to cut all of your spending by 20%, and people are not willing to do that. Uh, and Bob's computer research was able to prove that you could cut your spending back a little bit. So Bob's system says if the stock market's down, instead of taking 4% next year and having to whack a big spending cut, take 95% of what you took last year. Just take a little spending cut. And so instead of having to cut way back because the market was down, you cut back just a little bit from what you had last year. And if the market's down the next year, well, you just take 95% of what you'd spent the year before. So you're cutting your spending a little bit by a few percentage points until the market recovers. And then once the market recovers, you go back on the 4% of withdrawal every year. And if the market's flat, same rule, 4%. And what he was able to show was over the 30-year period and even longer that uh, that variable withdrawal rate would get you through the bear market. The big problem with the Trinity study is that if you got through a severe bear market in the first five or ten years after you retired and you were boosting your withdrawals every year for inflation in the face of that big bear market, you could chew way into your portfolio during that first five or ten years and it would never recover. And uh, one of the one of the more popular threads on uh, Ratter's board is the, uh, the Y2K retiree. And he's had a thread running. It's been 14 years. He's had a thread running there on the Y2K retiree who retired in January of 2000 when the NASDAQ was approaching its all-time peak. 
And this hapless retiree has rigidly followed the uh, Trinity study, and every year he's taken uh, an inflation adjustment on his 4% safe withdrawal rate. And by now, because he's been boosting his spending every year for retirement, he's looking at a uh, withdrawal of about 10% of his portfolio every year just to keep adding the inflation adjustments onto his original 4% withdrawal rate. And it's become clear after 14 years, there's just no way that his portfolio is going to recover from the damage that was done by the uh, 2001-2002 bear market. He just took too much money out during that. Hmm. And in the 2008 recession, it's more or less the, the, uh, the final sentence on the possibility of his portfolio ever recovering. So, Bob, being able to show that you could vary your spending during a recession was a big step forward, I think, for people. And today, you can probably find five or six more systems of variable withdrawal rates you know, with different rules and different uh, systems and different processes. And, and there's even different ways to run a portfolio. I know people who uh, are going to wait until they can survive on only the interest and dividends from their portfolio. They're never going to touch the principal. They're just going to keep working until they build a portfolio big enough to uh, have the dividends and the interest that they earn from their investments support their lifestyle, and, and they'll live like that. Makes me wonder with this retiree, it makes me wonder if did they set an age, this hapless Y2K retiree, and could they have adjusted it with him taking Social Security at some point? Anyone I, I gotten that complicated with it? I think Social Security would eventually save him as his portfolio is running out. Uh, but that's what he'd be living on for the rest of his life is Social Security. So yeah. I don't think that a particular age was chosen for this uh, guy. It was probably in his 40s or 50s, of course, the typical age group uh, of most early retirees. But uh, no, they didn't, they didn't count on him being saved <laughs> by Social Security. Poor guy. <laughs> oh, well, we will eulogize oh, well. him. <laughs> we exactly. will eulogize him as the perils of sticking to a fixed plan. Uh, well, that's a, neat, that's, a, that's a neat system. I'm glad you reminded me. I need to, one of, one of my reading projects for next year is I'm going to really dig through. I've read some of the literature, but I'm going to try to develop a comprehensive like survey of all of the all of the studies that have been done on safe withdrawal rates and see if I can oh, good. bring that to the show and kind of talk through the developments. Um, good. Has the has the movement grown? Uh, the early retirement community, I guess, community is better word than movement. Has the community grown? I I, I think so. Uh, it's grown that there's more people. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily grown as a, as a part of society. For example, the the number of people get on the internet every year goes up by fifty or sixty percent, and so every year there are plenty more people learning about early retirement. But I couldn't tell you whether. 1% of society is interested in early retirement or whether it's risen to 2% or 4%. I can't tell you if the uh, worldwide interest in early retirement has gone up over the years as a percentage of the humans on the face of the earth. I do know that with all the calculator tools out there that people are beginning to realize that as they approach uh, an age where they might have enough finances to be able to retire, they're able to convince themselves that, yes, it is feasible, the math does work, and yes, you can do it. And you just did not have those tools back in the 70s or 80s unless you happen to cash out of a large uh, inheritance or a business and know that you could live off those dividends for the rest of your life. Uh, today, you can figure out your sources of income. You can figure out how you want to structure your portfolio. You can figure out how your assets are going to work together to give you your income for the rest of your life. And you can approach that with a high degree of confidence that even if you're retiring in your 30s, that you'll still be able to sustain yourself for the rest of your life. And, and plan B may be going back to work. Uh, and, and that may work for the years until you're in your 40s or 50s. But after that, the idea of going back to work may be less attractive and uh, you may not have the skills to find a job when you're in your 60s. Have... Uh um, have did did you didn't mention in that in in your timeline 
you didn't mention Jacob Lund Fisker and you didn't mention Mr. Money Mustache. Were they uh, large? Did, did they add to the conversation? Uh, oh, definitely. Uh, and, you know, in this, in this timeline we're discussing, we're barely into the uh, late oh, uh, so, 2007, so, 8. So keep going so, then. Don't let me <laughs> yeah, interrupt you. Keep, keep going. going. I've got another phone call in uh, 10 minutes, but uh, we <laughs> we'll can keep wrap going for, for hours. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the next two big initiatives were, of course, Jacob Lund Fisker, who I think started uh, his uh, forum probably in 2010, 2011. I'm not sure exactly uh, when he really came online. And uh, probably 2008, 2009, now that I think about it, because uh, in a couple of years he passed the torch to uh, Mr. Money Mustache. Uh, but Jacob, of course, had learned the extreme frugality approach. Uh, you can either uh, save up more money to support your retirement lifestyle or you can drastically cut your expenses. And that was a big step forward. And, and as Jacob has said, it was never about retiring early. It was always about a sustainable lifestyle and minimizing your footprint on the earth. And that's what made it so easy for him to pass the torch to uh, Mr. Money Mustache. Uh, that was early 2011, and uh, I'd say that uh, everything he's taken from Jacob and developed since then has uh, grown a huge following of people that are happy to have somebody who supports their frugal and their green uh, lifestyle aspirations. And, and, oh, by the way, if you do this for 20 years and do it with more than half your pay, you can retire early. That's just the, the icing on top of the cupcake there. Yeah. So something this, There's a skill that Pete – I first – I don't remember – I think I originally found your money or your life was my path into knowing mm -hmm. about it. Because for me, I, I grew up reading personal finance books about save 15% and you'll be rich at 65. And then I read your money or your life. And that totally just surprised me. And I think that led me to early retirement extreme was, was kind of my entry into learning more about it. Uh, but I've, I think that the work that Mr. Money Mustache is doing, though, is although – He's not as accessible as, as some, like mainstream. He's a lot more accessible than Jacob was, and his skill with writing, being funny and engaging, and then <laughs> the thing that I most appreciate. And sometimes I get concerned he's going to cross this line, but that he uh, money mustaches he steers away from a lot of the technical topics. So as a financial advisor, I would often struggle to say, how do I get this concept across to a client? And I would send him a money mustache article. And that money mustache article, a lot of times, was funny enough, but straightforward enough that they would read it, and then it would make them think. And they would say, oh, oh and they would start reading around. And because he stared away from the technical topics, he didn't say, I mean, he said a little bit about indexing or, or, you know, but he didn't say, you know, here's what you've got to do, which is what where where writers where it becomes difficult to recommend something to your clients because you have to give it all kinds of caveats. Well, this year, listen to this and this and this, Mr. Client. Here, read this book, but you have to ignore point seven, thirteen, fourteen, and sixty-seven, <laughs> and that's really tough. That was where it came to. I used to give away Dave Ramsey's books. I would carry them by the boxes, oh, yeah. and I'd have to give so many caveats that finally I said, Why? "They're not going to read the book." <laughs> so yeah. I was able to send them his blog articles, and I've sent dozens and dozens and dozens, and I've had many clients. Whereas just enough kind of who, who his writing is the perfect fit for is kind of high income, um, middle class income, high lifestyle spending. And he makes it sound so easy, like, like oh, how, how crazy for you not to be able to live on $20,000 a year. What's wrong with you? You're, you're a weak, flabby guy. He makes it sound so easy. And it's so funny, but there's a ring of truth to it. I had a lot of clients come back and say, wow, that really helped me. Now let's, let's figure out a plan for me. And so his right. was, he, I feel like he's probably done a, a more to advance the cause for the early retirees than many 
many others because it's so accessible for middle-income professionals, which is, in my mind, where you have the easiest go of it. High income, high lifestyle, a couple of optimizations to the lifestyle, and all of a sudden, high savings. Well, it's very clear what's valuable to him, what brings uh, value to his life, and it's not spending money, and that helps people figure out what brings value to their own lives and how they can cut their expenses and just spend the money on the things they enjoy. Right. This has been a great podcast conversation. <laughs> we should continue it. Yeah, this has been this has been fun. I was just gonna last last question and we're done because uh, okay. you got to get to your other phone call. What do you actually do all day? <laughs> yeah, what do I do all day? I start I start the morning. Literally every morning, I check the surf forecast to see what I'm going to be doing that day. Because if the surf is up, I'm going to rearrange my priorities and go find some. Uh, but otherwise, I get up in the morning and I write. I work on an article or a book or a chapter or a post for the blog, and I'll work on that for 20, 30 minutes or so. And then the rest of the day is free. And I'll usually do some chores in the morning. You know, we've got home improvement or yard work to do around the house. And I enjoy a lot of the reading I do on the Internet. I probably keep up with, uh, you know, 50 or 60 blogs through an RSS feed, and I enjoy catching up on that. Uh, I enjoy reading in general. It doesn't have to be personal finance, so. I'll read for a couple hours every day. And, you know, my spouse and I spend time together, go for walks, uh, exercise, just everything else that everybody else does, uh, except I get to do it every day, all day. And uh, if I need to go surfing, I can change the schedule and do what I need to do and catch up later. Doug, thanks for coming on the show. I really enjoyed having you. Thanks, Joshua. This has been great. Pretty cool, eh? Doug, thanks so much for coming on and for sharing some of the history. Uh, I love I love learning about it, and there's more history there than I, I than I ever knew about. And what a cool way to build a life! I mean, one of my dreams is that from a young age we can help more and more people be financially independent from an early age. Now, whether or not financially ind- financial independence is measured from the perspective of never having to work again, I think that's that's awesome, and that's a really great definition. But even just the attitude of being financially independent, a little bit of money piled up can really make a big difference in people's career choices. And to help people make a transition and stop doing mind-numbing work and be able to pursue the things that are of great interest to them. So very cool. Doug, thanks so much for coming on. I hope you enjoyed this show. If this was your first time listening to the show, uh, we'd be thrilled. We're here every day, Monday through Friday, with in-depth, hardcore financial planning talk, uh, lots of great interviews like this, a wide-ranging range of uh, subjects. Uh, So make sure you come by and subscribe. You can subscribe in iTunes or on Stitcher. Hopefully within a couple of weeks, I'm working on an app uh, which will work on every device and you'll be able to subscribe directly on the application and bypass some of the problems that some of the external uh, applications have. If you would like to connect with me, Joshua at RadicalPersonalFinance.com is my email address. You can find me on Twitter at RadicalPF, Facebook.com slash RadicalPersonalFinance. Let's read another review on, on our way out, a short iTunes review. This one comes in from Cal Maniac. Cal says, all steak, no sizzle. Joshua is genuine, intelligent, and an excellent communicator. His insights and perspectives are truly outstanding. He is data-driven, skeptical, and thinking about the big picture, yet very much down to earth. No gimmicks or other typical flashy financial BS. In one word, this podcast is brilliant. Cal, thank you so much. Thank you. That means the world to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you to each one of you who has left uh, me a review on iTunes or on Stitcher. I appreciate each and every one of those. They help the uh, show rankings from time to time. Uh, for help other people find us as we go on. If you've enjoyed this show, I'd be thrilled if you would consider joining the Irregulars. That's the membership support program, which is how I've designed to uh, support this show. 
Details can be found at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash membership. Have a great day, everybody. listening to today's show. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, and financial enlightenment. Your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. This show is not, and is not intended, to be any form of financial advice. Please, develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy, and consult them because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. Hold them accountable for your results. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please come by the show page and comment so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, thanks for being here. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry, with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.